DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. It is time to talk with David Locke, our weekly visit brought to you by the Murdoch Auto Team. David, my head is going to explode. November is the time for football, and I got the Masters in the NBA draft. I, this is all out of whack. I don't know what I'm doing. Ah! I think I'm with you. I think the Masters, from a TV standpoint, the Masters will be fascinating because every sporting event that has been off-kilter um, has had just terrible ratings. And the Masters is so unique and has such a uh, narrow focus of fan base and is such a one-off experience, you would think that it should be fine. So it'll be interesting. But the horses that ran at the wrong time, nobody watched. You know, Kentucky Derby, Breeders' Cup, Preakness had the worst ratings of any sporting event, and they're just off time, those one-off niche sport events. So I'm pretty curious to watch what happens with the Masters TV ratings and then – you know, we should be playing basketball right now. So just getting ready for the NBA draft actually just feels normal to me. I don't know anything about the draft. That's part of the deal is it's coming when there's so much going on. And usually you got time to do a deep dive, which is what is required for underclassmen coming out and uh, foreign guys coming over. And uh, what do you know for sure about this draft? So I've watched a decent amount so far. So let me try to give you my synopsis. There is not the Zion Williamson, Ja Morant talent, obviously, on the board. We all knew at this point last year that there were two really special players uh, that were there. there. You know, some people believe in James Wiseman. Some people don't. Some people believe in Anthony Edwards. Some people don't. There's a, probably a tier at the top that's a little better. The next tier of players, I actually almost feel like could be, you know, without a lot of stretching, could be 20 deep. Um, there's a abundance of players that do the right things or have the most important skills. So to me, the two most important things you have to have at this point in the draft is, or at this point in the NBA is elite athleticism or be able to stroke it, really be able to shoot it. Um, and the, almost everyone is one of those two right now. Um, the bodies and the physical uh, size of these guys is amazing. Just down the list. You just don't have the, six foot three shooting guard, you know, the CJ McCollum has turned out to be a good player, but that's a pretty rarity where that six foot two shooting guard actually turns out to work. Um, We haven't had that. There aren't a lot of those little pieces in this puzzle. So I find that if you think about players, DJ as okay, bonafide superstar, LeBron franchise changing Anthony Davis. I don't think there's that all-star there might be, I don't know who it is though. Just by numbers, there should be an all-star in this draft, but maybe not. Then you get to the next tier, which is starter, rotation player, you know, roster, non-rotation player. I actually think that the chance of Robert Wooder, who's a kid out of Mississippi State, who's in the 20s, and the chance of Killian Hayes, who's a French kid, who's being talked about in the top six, of being a starter are about the same. Um, I think... The kid out of Arizona, Josh Green, um, I think he could really be a starter in the NBA. Um, the same way that Tyrese Halliburton could be a starter in the NBA, but also might not. And he's talked about being six or seven. So I find when you start to tier them, you know, between starter, if you assume they're not going to be all-stars, and now they're starters or rotation players, that gap gets mammoth. And I think because of that, you'll see a lot of movement and you'll see a lot of people moving into the draft. And I think you won't see an order that matches any mock drafts because it's really going to be eye of beholder and what you 
uh, need for your team. So do the Jazz try to fill a need or just take the proverbial best player available? Um, I think we're pretty well set at center. Um, I feel like we're pretty well set at primary ball handler. And so if you were to draft either of those two, unless you truly loved uh, one of those two players, I think they'd have a hard time getting on the floor. So I think I might take the best player available that's not a center and not a primary ball handler. So, you know, like he's probably not going to be a first-round pick, but I really, really, really like the kid out of San Diego State. Um, but he Flynn? doesn't match. Yeah, Flynn. But he's he's doesn't he doesn't. I'm concerned. I mean, how small he is. Um, he is, you know, he's just not he's not big. Um, and I think you've really got. I think the six, unless you're really really special, I think the six foot one point guard is disappearing. Um, and um, so I think the, uh, you know, but I like him an awful lot. But for us. Like, how's he playing, right? Like, are we playing him and Donovan together? Well, if you don't really think you can play him with Donovan and Donovan's going to be playing 36 minutes a night, well, then I'm not sure I need to draft a guy who's going to get me 12 minutes a night. Like, who's that's his, you know, if, if we have a center and we really like him, but Rudy's playing 36 minutes a night, like, I, I, I don't know how we're, how we're using him in a manner that gets me more than 12 minutes a night. So I... I would take best player available that that has a route to the court. I am uh, I'm curious with some of the free agent decisions that will come up quickly after the draft, and I think one of the financial decisions that's out there, which is kind of tricky with an ownership change going on because the owners really got to sign off on something like this, but. Is it better to pay Conley a lot of money for one year, or is it better to give him some more money, have him opt out, and give him a, depending on what you think, a two- or three-year deal, build some more money in it for him, but maybe smooth out the number to give the team a, a little relief and not have one gigantic year on the contract? Or would you rather just do that because then you're going to have a gigantic year on Donovan's deal? That seems like a really important decision. In the middle of an ownership change, it seems like a difficult one, too. Yeah, I don't – you know, Dennis is so well – prepared and I mean the signature whenever you talk to anybody about Dennis and Justin is the preparation when you know I've talked to people who worked for them or around them I mean they just constantly talk about how brilliant the preparation and the amount of time and preparation it's put in and so while I understand what you're saying and it does make sense that you're asking to you know which boss are you asking this question to um, I I feel as though Dennis is so well and Justin are so well prepared and the whole front office that, you know, they're going to be able to put it into a pretty clear picture to whomever they're presenting it to, which is, you know, hey, if we do this, this is the advantages and these are the disadvantages. The fact of the matter is there's two, there's two parts of this decision that I think, what I think make it difficult is there's two parts of this decision that I think have to come first. Um, one is, you know, from your cap situation, what other moves are you taking – are you making and are you better off having zero on the books next year or 20 on the books in that, in that position, in that role? Um, so I think, you know, that would be, that's the first one. That's probably the, most. the other wild card that I don't want to like, I'm not making anything up here. Like I'm not, but 
we better like so the discussion that we all are having is whether Mike Conley at one year what thirty four would take not opt out to take a two year or a three year probably sixty million and figure he's going to make sixty million with the Jazz over the next three years instead of making you know fifty two if he goes to and signs a deal two year deal with someone else next year between like you're just that's the game. The assumption there is that Mike Conley wants to be in Utah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we actually don't know anything. Mike, you know, such a nice guy. He, he's never expressed anything. But, you know, does Mike Conley want to be on a team where he's not the primary ball handler? Like, does he want to be on a team where, like, what, what's, you know, like this, that wasn't a great year for him. I, I don't think he had a, you know, due to COVID and some other things, but I don't think he had a particularly enjoyable year, partially due to a hamstring and probably nothing to the Jazz fault. But if you were to ask him, like, was that the best year of your career or the least favorite year of your career, I'm pretty certain if those were the two choices, which one he would answer. So, oh wait a minute, what know, about? But what about? Whoa, whoa, whoa! What about going forward? Hey, the first half of the year was a mess. But I thought, and you can pick a date in February, I'd have to look it up, but I thought there was a date in about February forward where he was a much better player. He was clearly, he was A, healthy, and B, had had gone through the adjustment period and figured out where he fit in on the team. I thought it was good after that. So, 100%. 100%. Right, so, and, 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 and he knows that too. Last, yeah, and maybe that's his last memory, so what I'm bringing up is irrelevant. But none of us, I've never heard anyone discuss does he in want this, it? Does he want it? Right. Does he want it? Right. Yeah. Like, that has just not been discussed at all, is whether or not Mike Conley wants to – like, if Mike Conley wants to opt out of his contract to sign a three-year contract to make a little bit more money and give the Jazz flexibility, the key piece of the whole thing is, does Mike Conley want to do it? Yep. Not does the Jazz want Mike Conley to do it, but does Mike Conley want to do it? And part of that might be Mike Conley having new questions for new ownership, which comes back to the whole, wow, this is a difficult time to get it done. Not impossible – but, you know, difficult. I think if I were a Jazz fan, it wouldn't so much fear does he want to be in Utah. It's what kind of a deal can he get from a better team where he's closer to a championship. I think the days of him being a primary player on an elite team are gone, but he can still be a really good player on a team that's closer to a championship. If you're a Jazz fan and wants to hold on to Mike Conley, that's a scenario that would worry me. Right. I, I thought the way Miami used a similarly aged Goran Dragic uh, – Admittedly, a Goran Dragic whose leg problems are more severe than Mike Conley's. But I still thought it was an interesting thing to watch, right? So they had him come off the bench. They lowered his wear and tear by having him play a lot of minutes against non-Tier 1 players. He closed the majority of games uh, even with – but Tyler Hero and and some of the other kids, you know, also had the ball in their hands a lot, Um, Jimmy Butler. And – um, and he, you know, and then when it got to be playoffs, Goran Dragic not only started, but was brilliant. Um, and I think that, I think, I don't care about starting really in this conversation, but I think the managing of how Goran Dragic and who he matched up against guarding Russell Westbrook one night, Dame Lillard the next night and, you know, whomever the, you know, Steph Curry the night after at 32 years old and un- and smaller than all of them is brutal. And I think that there's something to be said in how Miami used Dragic. Now you do that, and now Donovan Mitchell 
unless you have somebody that you're, you know, Royce O'Neal is your starting two and you put him next to Donovan and try to hide Donovan a little bit. But if you're not careful. Donovan's the one guarding Russell Westbrook, um, Steph Curry, and Dame Lillard on back-to-back nights. I'm wondering about the owner. You have a unique situation here where he grew up as a fan of the team, but he's obviously an astute businessman or he wouldn't be able to own the team. So when it comes to these decisions regarding the team, how do you think this man balances being a fan and at the same time being a businessman? You know, we can only go off the models by which we've seen this take place. So let's just assume for a second he's going to be hands-on and active. I can't imagine I would spend $1.6 billion on a team and not be at every, you know, right? Like if the three of us, would we, can we all admit, like, if we spent $1.6 billion on a team, like I'm going to every practice, I'm probably sitting in every player personnel meeting. I'm going to want to know what the coach, like I want in, right? Like I just paid access. I want access to everything. You with me? Well, yeah, you, you deserve it. You own it. Right. So let's assume for a second he's hands-on. Now now we can kind of try to figure out what hands-on is. So, uh, And I don't know how much time he still plans to spend with Qualtrics. Like Mark Cuban was young, brilliant business person, with, and wasn't involved in broadcast.com anymore. So the Mavericks were his job. And I think we've seen him evolve over time, um, both you know as an owner, and I think we've seen his youthfulness and brilliance and outside – expertise really push the league into new areas and be an incredibly great asset to the league from a bigger picture. So I think that's a model that we can see with Ryan Smith. We DJ, you've talked. Um, well, I don't know if you've talked about it on the air, but you know, you and I, I don't want to steal your ideas in a private conversation, but I mean, you've talked about Larry's evolution as an owner. We saw that firsthand and you can elaborate on that. Um, and I think, you know, if we look around the league, you're, you're seeing a lot of these young owners come in with, who've had great success in the, in the tech world predominantly. And now they, this is their new venture. And I think there's, you know, you, we can look around at other owners to see how they've done it, but, um, and, and watch them evolve. So when you look at this schedule coming up, how much is depth going to matter? This 72 game schedule that ends before the Olympics and starts December 22nd, are they? Have you done the math on this? Do they have to go back to some four games and five nights to get this in? In which case, how you build your roster matters because you got to build some depth in when you've got key players over thirty. I don't think so. Um, I'm hearing fifteen back to backs, which is a few more, but I'm guessing that almost all of those. And I might be a hundred percent wrong here. I've, I don't know this. Uh, I'm guessing that those back to backs could be without travel. So we go to Oklahoma City and play Tuesday, Wednesday. Fly to Dallas, play Friday, Sunday. You're not playing four games in five nights. You're playing four games in six nights, and you're playing them in two cities. You're only taking three plane flights. The wear and tear is less. And, you know, you used to play those four games in probably seven nights with five plane flights. So you're playing one more game in the six days because of the fact that you're on a condensed schedule, but you're doing it with two fewer plane flights and probably less wear and tear. You know, Dennis kind of alluded to something like that in his press conference talking about how to minimize travel, so you're probably on to something there. 
I didn't completely see how they'd pull off what he was talking about, but he said they needed to learn lessons from Orlando and that the players routinely said that the, the less travel was a big factor because the shooting percentages went through the roof. Um, but probably for multiple reasons, and the players thought fewer plane flights, well, in the case of Orlando, one to get there and then no more after that, uh, were a big part of that. So, All right, David, well, we are out you of know, time. Would, oh, go ahead. TJ, I would share, I mean, I don't, I don't have anyone trying to dunk on me, and I'm not trying to hit a crossover jumper, but I have always said that the fatigue of the NBA season is the plane flight. You know, I don't know what it's like to play back-to-back days, but I, you know, I can, when I... So my fatigue is that I'm staring at my computer screen. And I can't take in any information, right? So the computer's not trying to dunk on me. It's not the same. But I am living the same life. And I, I will tell you, it's plane flights are the item that wears me out. David, thanks for the time. We appreciate it as always. Thank you, guys. David Locke joining us every week right here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. And David's weekly interview brought to you by the Murdoch Auto Team. Coming up in about 15 minutes, B.J. Raines, Boise State beat writer for the Idaho Press Tribune. Coming up next, question of the day, part two. You'd fans, look into the future. See how I changed that, PK? That's a little better, isn't sure, it? Sure, yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that next. Stay with us. Let's go. The Big Show. It's a big with Gordon Monson and Jake Scott. Josh Newman from the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm sure that you have a thousand sources that are whispering in your ear about who the starter is going to be. What's your best guess? I think it's Cameron Rising. One, he has spent more time in Andy Ludwig's system. Remember, Rising had the red shirt last year, spent game days in the press box next to Ludwig. Number two, Kyle Whittingham has kind of harped throughout fall camp. Accuracy the most important thing. They're charting every pass. And Kyle, not too long ago, really kind of made it a point to say that Rising's accuracy has really taken a pretty significant step forward. We haven't seen practice. I could absolutely be wrong, but I'm at like 60-40 that it's rising over Jake Bentley. The Big Show, weekdays from 2 to 7 on 97.5-1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network.